Welcome to Emerging Women's Grace and Fire podcast, where we explore ideas, practices, and life hacks for modern women leading change in the world. This is Chantal Pirat, your host and founder of Emerging Women, and I'm feeling my full warrior energy after speaking with Glennon Doyle Melton. She is the best-selling author of Carry On Warrior and founder of Momistry.com, and her new book, Love Warrior, launches in just a few weeks, and without a doubt, will be yet another bestseller. Her writing is simultaneously hilarious and vulnerable, full of raw, unabashed realness on everything from addiction to motherhood to marital infidelity. And though she writes, as she says, simply as a way to survive, her words are powerful and resonate with readers who have found themselves, quote, on the bathroom floor, end quote, in their own ways. I love that she's also a fierce movement maker, full of outward action to help people in need. Glennon is the creator of Together Rising, a nonprofit organization that has raised over $4 million for families around the world through its love flash mobs, which have revolutionized online giving. I can't wait to hear what she has to share on the stage at Emerging Women Live 2016 this October in San Francisco. It's going to be juicy if this podcast is any indication. Today, Glenn and I talk about being underneath and the dangers of treating pain like a hot potato, the benefits of a tender feminine faith that isn't rule-bound, the feeling of being evicted from your whole life and what comes next, how society colors the way we are able to give and receive love, how to view women as warriors rather than helpers. Let's dive into this week's Grace and Fire conversation, Love Warrior, with the self-proclaimed Recovering Everything, Glennon Doyle Melton. Hello and welcome, Glennon Doyle Melton. How are you? (laughs) Oh, I'm so good. So psyched to be talking to you. I know. There's something, um, every time we talk, I feel so familiar, you know, just like mm-hmm. being from the East Coast, like, you know, saying I'm psyched, I'm psyched to do anything, you know? I just, <laughs> That's funny. I never think about that. You don't think about yeah. that? It's so funny. You just no. have a way about you that no. feels familiar. Oh. But I think that's part of why you have been able to affect so many lives and People feel that, you know, the way that you are in the world and the way that you write, it just feels like you're speaking for so many people who have similar experience, even if the actual conditions may be a little varied. Yeah, that's such a blessing to me that people feel that way. And it is funny that people say that to me all the time. Oh, I feel like we're friends. You know, I I wish you were my friend. And I'm always like, oh, I'm a terrible friend. Like, I'm a much better like writer and speaker about love and I'm a raging introvert. So I don't, it's funny. I can be really bold and um, honest and talk about everything in my, on stage or in writing, but I'm a run a dud at a a cocktail party, man. I cannot talk at all at at a cocktail party and I can't call anyone back. So I always say, no, I, you don't want to be friends with me. (laughs) Just read my stuff. We'll be closer that way. That's so interesting because your book, Love Warrior, is really a book about intimacy and a call for yeah. a deep modern view on intimacy. 
Mm-hmm. It really is. Yeah. And I didn't know that. I mean, I, I guess I found myself in a situation where the least intimate relationship in my life um, was the one that was supposed to be the most intimate, right? right? Like I just figured out that my husband and I just weren't truly, we were great life partners in terms of raising kids and, you know, doing the whole life outward thing. But in terms of emotional and physical and spiritual intimacy, we just weren't at all touching at all. Well, let's start. I mean, there's so much to unpack here with Love Warrior, but I also want to make sure that our audience has a little bit more of a history of you and they've already heard that you have written already one memoir. I mean, how amazing is that? You've written two memoirs. I love that. I mean, we should maybe do like one every four years. I mean, because so much changes, but I just love that you're really kind of putting your life out there to inspire others. And no matter what the topic is, whether it's recovery or infidelity, you are just being real and it's so refreshing. Yeah, I don't know how to survive any other way, Chantal. I really don't. Like, I, it's funny to hear you say you you write to inspire people, which is so wonderful that that's how it's turned out. But that is actually not why I started or why I even, why I wrote Carry On Warrior or Love Warrior. It was just an absolute, this is how I survive. This is how I figure out what I think. It's how I process what's happened to me in my life. I mean, I just, I find life to be so, um, intense like so, I'm just a super sensitive person and so going through life it just feels like a war zone sometimes and <laughs> um, my highs are so high and my lows are so low that I'm usually just trying to make it through I'm not processing and so when I if I didn't sit down to write I would never be able to make meaning of um what's happened to me and I would never be able to set intention right like yeah because if you can't make sense of the past and you can't decide where you're going in the future so you know, writing to me, it's almost like, I mean, so for, for some I ever went to a, a recovery meeting and I just sat in a circle with people and was like, oh my God, these are the people I've been waiting for. Like these banged up, drunk, bulky, druggy, depressive, these are my people. Like they are so honest. Mm. Um, like I'd rather do life like this than any other way. Um, and so... Yeah, the terrible thing about recovery meetings is they make you leave at the end. I just remember wanting to live there. Mm-hmm. Um, so my writing is really just the way that I turn my whole world into a recovery meeting. <laughs> right. It's survival for me. Right. Well, you have this reference point that kind of this theme, a metaphor that you carry out through the book, and, and you call it being underneath or mm-hmm. when you describe some of your former relationships when you were not caring for yourself and not doing your writing practice and you were in your addiction phases of being in basements. And so maybe we could start there so people could learn a little bit of your history through that metaphor of being underneath and what that felt like for you. Yeah, I mean, I think that underneath for me, it's going underneath that process has been a million different things since I was 10. So, um, bulimia, food, alcohol, sex, um, shopping, you know, all of the things that kind of remove us from pain. Right. So when I was really little, I figured out that life was painful, um, that love was risky and, um, vulnerability was 
uh, dangerous and life was hard. And I decided that I couldn't handle it. Um, and so I hid inside of bulimia. So I became bulimic when I was 10. Um, and I think that, that really the way I've come to understand addiction um, is that it's just kind of a hiding place. Like it's just a hiding place where sensitive people can go to, you know, protect themselves from love and pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the sad thing is, of course, that, you know, the only things that grow us are love and pain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, you can hide from them. You really can. You just can't have the fully human experience. Um, you can't grow. So that's why, you know, so many people who fall into addiction when they're 19, they can come out when they're 36 and they still function like a 19-year-old, right? Because mm-hmm. they stopped growing. they um been hiding. So, I mean, the underneath for me has always been escape, 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 escape from whatever's happening right now, um, whether it's good or bad. Um, this inability to just be still um, with what's happening to me and really believe that, that it's going to pass, you know, that I'm going to survive, that, that the shift for me came when I figured out that it's okay to be afraid, um, but that people won't kill me. You know, that I was afraid of the wrong thing, that I really shouldn't be afraid of pain, but I should be afraid of going underneath, right? Because mm-hmm. what never was going to kill me was the pain, was the loneliness and the fear and the anger and the, um, you know, otherness um, and the unbelonging, which, um, by the way, are just all totally human, right? We just think there's something wrong with us when we feel those things because in our culture, we don't talk about it mm-hmm. we only talk about we only talk about shiny happy things like i mean how many freaking times a day there's a woman who's walking around just neutral faced someone look at her and say smile mm-hmm. smile like, oh we love that the, oh the women i mean the <sighs> world wants a woman to be freaking smiling constantly you know it's like so we learn that it's not okay that whatever these um emotions are that are just human and that you know the other half of the um, population gets to have are, are just simply not okay for us. Um, they're signals of failure or, or, or just wrongness. And so, um, yeah, I just, I think that's why a lot of women go underneath. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, everybody I know goes underneath in different ways. I mean, dear God, like life is too hard to be present all the time. I'm not even trying that. I mean, I know that I can't use um, booze or sex or drugs like that anymore. Um, but God, I still have my underneath. Like when I can't take it anymore, I just turn on some trash TV and turn off my brain. And, you know, there are less destructive ways to go underneath. Um, so I don't know. I just know that I am a person who ran from pain for the first half of my life every day, every minute. Um, and that it sucked, you know, that I just hurt everybody in my life, including myself. I think that's one of the lessons you figure out with pain is that you either, it, it just pain just demands to be felt, you know, like mm. if you don't feel it, mm. you can choose not to feel it, but somebody else will, right? Like you'll pass it on to your spouse or you'll pass it on to your kids or you'll pass it on to everybody in the freaking post office mm. or you'll pass it out. Like it's just demand, like there's no escaping it. Mm-hmm. So, and, and, and I mean, I, we are just a culture of people who treat pain like a hot potato. Right. Like the second we get it, we just try to get rid of it as fast as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, I have the word be still tattooed on my body right now, literally, because mm-hmm. 
for me, that's everything. Like being still is the opposite of compulsion and it's the opposite of addiction. It's the opposite of running. It's the opposite of war. Um, just the ability to be still inside of pain is some kind of alchemy, you know, it really changes things. Mm -hmm. So I just try to go underneath as little as possible. Yeah. And yet I feel that, you know, it's a dance when I read, you know, your writing is that it's almost now that you have a more positive relationship with pain, the underneath becomes more of a source or you called it a reunion with yourself that in many ways kind of, I don't know if underneath is the right word, but going inward and finding that is, I mean, I think you need to be comfortable with pain in order to fully make that union and that understanding of who we are on the inside possible. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole point, right? I mean, the uh, underneath is not, the, the underneath is not sitting with your pain. The underneath is escaping your pain. Yeah. Like the, that's what I have to avoid. Oh God, no. I mean, my job in life now um, is to wake up every single morning and run towards pain. That's what I do. That's what I do in my writing. That's why I don't write about bullshit. Right. Like, mm -hmm whatever is hurting is you write about what hurts, you know? So, um, so that other people, cause we can handle pain. We just can't handle being alone in pain. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so you write about what hurts so that other people can come and, um, and not feel alone. And then, you know, that's what all of my nonprofit work is about. I used to not say, oh, I can't handle it. I can't handle the pain of the world. Well, that's also bullshit, right? Like we, we run towards our own pain in our, in our hearts and in ourselves and our past. And we run towards our pain in our relationships because that's where it needs healing. And, and we run towards the pain of the world. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and the thing is that it sounds so depressing, but it's somehow not like it's that first, it's that first decision to do it, to sit with it. And then it becomes magic. Like every day I'm dealing with heavy stuff, you know, I mean, because I write about heavy stuff, people send me their heavy stuff. So I sit with stories that, you know, well, I'm sure you know with your work. Like, it's, yes. they blow your mind. Mm -hmm. um, and somehow none of it's too heavy. Like, it's the good stuff. Like, this is the heavy stuff that we were meant to help each other carry, mm -hmm. you know? Like, God, give me the heavy stuff over a night full of small talk. You know, that's what kills me. Yeah. Yeah. The fake light stuff. Uh-huh. One of the parts in the early part of the book where you're on the bathroom floor and that was I feel very pivotal and also relatable when we discover that there's something larger than ourselves out there that we can actually coordinate with and communicate with and lean on and and mm, you had an yeah. invitation from God at the most you know you were kind of broken down on your bathroom floor in your apartment and was that the first time that your relationship with spirit and your relationship with God came into your life? No. See, this is interesting to me, to me at least. I've always felt like, I mean, I've, you know, I'm pretty jacked up since I was 10, but I have always felt like held, like held by mm -hmm. some kind of force. Um, even when I was really, really, really far gone. Um, so that's interesting to me, you know, and I grew up Catholic, actually, but we never yeah. really got indoctrinated much. Um, so I never felt like I had that much to unlearn. Like, I didn't have to unlearn a ton. There's some, like there's some in the book that I had to unlearn. But 
but not a ton. You know, I feel like sometimes the healthiest spiritual people are people who cared didn't say too much. <laughs> not mm-hmm. a lot of mm-hmm. crap to undo. Um, but now, I mean, on that bathroom floor, I, yeah, I remember holding that pregnancy test and thinking, okay, like, what kind of God would send a beautiful invitation like this to, like, a drunk on her hands and knees? I just I felt like the utterly most unqualified, unprepared candidate for motherhood ever, you know? And still, here is this invitation to become one. Um, and so, whatever you want to call it, I don't care. Like, what is science? Like, it's a sperm and an egg. It's God. Like, it's, it's spirit. Whatever it is, it happened, you know? Like, it was an invitation from something. Um, and so, and I still feel like that all the time. So I felt like, I feel like with this life and this career and this parenting stuff, I, I always think about that every day. Like every day I'm in some sort of situation where I'm on the bathroom floor feeling completely unworthy yeah. um, and holding some, and holding some kind of invitation from God. Right. Yeah. And like the question is, are we going to show up or are we going to keep insisting that we're not worthy yeah. of the invitation? Yeah. I mean, I loved that because, you know, sometimes invitations can come in a very negative form. Sometimes they can be beautiful sometimes, but to be able to completely take that situation, it felt like a real turning point for you. And I feel that your connection to spirit, once again, that is also very inspiring for me and for others, that it seems to be a continuous thread, no matter what the highs or the lows are. And yeah, it's something that seems to have pulled you out from underneath. Yeah. Um, And, you know, has been something like solid. So, and it's something that changed and shifted. And I want to, I kind of want to weave that in. So I wanted to just bring that up and establish, you know, that you're, you have faith. You're a woman of faith. Yeah. Yeah. I have faith. I have a a fierce, like tender faith um, that feels kind of like this current that's always dragging me one way or another. Um, It's not a faith that, has a lot of certainty or um I don't like I I've been to places recently where they've been like do you agree with this faith statement like that's not my kind of faith like I don't I'm not gonna I don't have a list of things that I believe um I don't have rules about my faith um and I don't have any sort of 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 concept of like who's in and who's out at all um and I and I actually find myself I just believe in this like unseen order of things. It's one of my favorite definitions of faith is this unseen order of things that you can mm. feel in your heart is possible. You know, like, so we turn on the news and we see the visible order of things, which is sometimes so painful, you know, like war and starvation and oppression and all of that. And in our hearts, we reject that, right? We're like, no, God, something better, you know, that has to do with like everybody's fed and there's no war and, um, and all people are treated equal and, you know, we're just loving beyond race and religion and borders and sexuality and gender identity and just beyond, 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 like there's something better. Mm-hmm. Um, like I can taste that order of things, you know, so that that's that order of things is what like Christians would call heaven or, you know, Buddhists might call enlightenment or like what, what nirvana or whatever it is. But, um, so I tend to just want to be with people who also have that vision mm-hmm. um, in their hearts. And, and, and honestly, somehow, like a lot of them tend, I'm a Christian, but a lot of them tend not to be Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I sometimes feel that I'm with Christians sometimes that 
they're, they see a different unseen order of things than I do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I tend to gel most just progressive thinkers that, who are of different religions or of no religion. Um, so I don't know. I just don't have a lot of categories for people in my faith, but it's more of just like this thing I can taste. Well, I mean, as a side note, I just have to say that this whole religion categorization of religion and which one you belong to and all of that, I think one of the things that women in particular are bringing to the table are kind of a breaking down of those hard definitions and more of a connection to truly my personal experience with spirits. And the more that we can learn from people like you to really speak our truth and to be articulate, you know, to find that right, to one, celebrate that connection and not shun it or be shamed about it, no matter what form it takes. And then two, to speak about it, I think that we're all going to find that there may be an infinite number of variations of that connection. Yes. And of course there are, right? Yeah. Of course there are. I mean, of course, every single one of us has our own faith. It's so, it's a very institutional, like made up idea that, um, that we have to have these categories. And and I, and I know, I know you're onto something with this. You said women are, are thinking this way. I just, that's why there's so much of love word that has to do with the divine feminine. I just think there's something, and I'm just not going to explain it well, but there's like this current that's happening in women, um, and, and, and it's just rising, it's rising, and I can hear it in women's voices, and I can feel it when I'm at events with them, and um, I see it happening in writing, in women's writing. It just feels like revolution, you know? It feels like revolution, and it has to do with a different kind of leadership that is feminine, you know, that has to do with connection and, and nurturing each other. And, um, it's just a whole different set of roles and it's time for it. Like it's it's time time. for it. We've tried every other way and it doesn't work, you know? So I'm so excited. I, I have goosebumps right now talking to you. Like I just, I was doing a podcast yesterday and I was talking about something like this and all three of us just started crying. These are like oh. three like super strong women who are all leading different things and we could just feel it in each other, like this, this rising. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I mean, and that, and that, that thing, that whole thing has, has changed my faith too. Like I can't, I find it harder and harder to call my, to call God. He, I can't like, it's starting to feel like chalkboards on a, on a, you know, a fingernails on a chalkboard right now. I mean, I just, yeah, which is, which I grew up with. And my, me too. I mean, I grew up just like you, Catholic, once a week, you know, CCD. <laughs> yes, CCD, me too. Oh totally God. CCD school, you know. I know. Well, you know what I love is you make this point when your parents kind of put their foot down and they send you to the church And there's this, you know, there's the priest. And yet before he comes to get you, you have a moment where you're standing in front of Mary and like your whole worldview just changed and you could feel all the compassion, all the love practically in the universe in that moment. I mean, I'm kind of reading into it myself. This is how I experienced it. Mm -hmm. And then the priest came in and you were talking about how in a way the administration and the 
the formality and the rollout of the faith and the spirituality that was encompassed in Mary was being usurped. And they were, you had a quote, you said, you know, they were, quote, charging for forgiveness, whereas Mm -hmm. Mary was just giving forgiveness in the look, you know, that you were in the experience you were getting from her, you know? Mm -hmm. And yet there was, and so I just thought that was so astute because in a way, our masculine version of spirituality is this, you know, putting so much structure and penance and accountability and all this. And the middleman. Uh, yeah, and the middleman and the middleman. Middle middle like, right. where the hell did that come from? Well, I can guess. Yes. I mean, it's like, that's not a thing. That is not a thing. Like, I don't have to go through some man to get to God. Like, right. that's, that's. And that probably seems so simple to a certain level of consciousness, but it's not simple to, to those of us who have grown up in the church. Like it's, that is a revolution and it's scary. Like w- when I talk like this, it scares people who are in um, the institution of church because we are just people who think if we make enough rules around things that we will keep ourselves safe. You know, which it, which just is so not true. And and it took me all of Love War to figure out, oh, my God, like, the church is not God. Oh, my God. Like, yeah. just like a bank is not money. Like, right. the church is not God. It's just a place that tries to, to um, control God and, like, divvy God up and give it to people. But you could actually just go around it. And so, until I'm a church lady. I'm a Sunday school teacher, okay? So I actually yeah. do believe that there's... there's um, beauty and goodness inside of church, but I couldn't believe that until I understood that, that I didn't need it. Yeah. That that wasn't, that God wasn't sending me there to get God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's go on this journey together. Cause so you, you've got carry on warrior, you've started momastry, you've got, you know, millions of people, I mean, I guess a million a day coming, you know, to your website and you're helping, you know, all kinds of women, not just moms. I mean, I'm a mom too, but I feel like your writing is so relevant for people, even if they're not moms, but you're reaching so many people and really affecting people in that way. And you've got, you know, Together Rising, your nonprofit. I want to talk a little bit more about that, but you're thriving and then bam, you get delivered. The news, as you call it, and mm-hmm. um, and let's start there, and maybe just set some context for your marriage. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So I got married a few months after I got sober. Um, I got sober when I thought I was pregnant, and then I got married a few months after that. So it was basically like you know the typical shotgun wedding. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd been sober for a hot second and, um, and I married a precious, precious man who I'm still married to. And he, neither of us were ready for marriage in any way, shape or form. Um, but we did a good job. I mean, we did a really good job of, of making it, you know, we take good care of each other and we, um, had Chase and then we had two more little girls and we were doing life, you know, we did, we had a nice house and I had a writing career and he had a good career. And, um, you know, there's not anybody who wouldn't have said, God, you guys, you're doing it. Um, and then we were in therapy one day, um, just kind of doing normal marriage maintenance stuff. And we had this weird moment where I just felt this weird energy in the room. And 
And I said, I don't think, I think there's like secrets here. And, and, and truly, so I thought like, I had no clue there was a secret before that moment. Like, it wow. was like, wow. everything happened in a moment. Like I looked over and I was like, wait a minute, what the? Um, and so I said something that was basically like a game of chicken. Like I was like, I don't think, I think I might be missing something here. Like I think there's something huge going on in my marriage I don't know about. And I thought for sure that Craig would be like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> but he didn't. He was, he was silent. He was totally silent. And I was like, Oh my God. Um, and so anyway, he just started talking and basically what he told me is that he'd been unfaithful our entire marriage. Um, like starting right after we got married to right before that therapy session. Um, and so it was the kind of infidelity that is not relational infidelity. It's just like, you know, a series of one night stands. Um, and anyway, I tr- I used to think that people who said that they never saw it coming were just like slow, um, but I really didn't see it coming. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I like looking back now, I can be like, oh yeah, like you know, and, and a lot of Karen Ward is that it's like, oh mm-hmm. of course, of course. Um, so who knows how much is denial and how much is really just stuffiness. Um, but so it was totally devastating because the first rock bottom of my life, which is that, you know, back and forth pregnancy test, I don't know, these things happen in your life. It's like you're going about life and then something happens and you kind of just get evicted from your whole life, you know, just like all of a sudden everything that was isn't anymore. So everybody gets those, you know, Yeah. it could be, it could be infidelity. It could be a, a, a child, you know, house diagnosis. It could be a loss. It could be... It's whatever, like, you're going along, and it's just like, oh, my God. And there's a before and after, right? Yeah. Um, and, and, and it really did feel like an eviction. And, and the thing is that I knew that. Like, I, I experienced that with that pregnancy test, but I was being evicted from a life that sucked back then. Like, I was drunk. Like, that was a good eviction. You know, like, I didn't want that life anymore anyway. But the second rock bottom with the infidelity was just so much more painful because I didn't want to be evicted. I had a good life. Like I thought I had everything that I had ever wanted. Yeah. You know, family and happy kids and a husband and a good career and just all bam. And it all felt over at once because my whole life felt like a lie. Because I was writing about family. Like my whole career was based on truth and honesty and transparency and being a parent and being a wife. Everything just immediately felt like a lie. Like I felt like a freaking idiot, first of all. And then I felt like a liar. Um, and then it was just one of those sudden like things that happens to women where you just completely define yourself by every role in your life. Well, then what happens when they're gone? You know? Um, which is why one of the things I try to do so much is get women to think more deeply about who they actually are. Because I needed that then. Like I needed to have an identity that wasn't completely tied to the people that I loved or served in my life Yeah. because it was, when it was all taken away from me, I had nothing left. Like Chantal used to wake up in the morning, just paralyzed. Like I literally didn't know what to do with myself. Like, because I didn't know who I was at all. Yeah. If I didn't have these perfect kids, if I didn't have this husband, if I didn't have this career, if I didn't like, what am I? Yeah. Um, so anyway, the blessing of that time is that I did figure out who I was. Like I really do. Like I'm, I live with so much less fear right now. Like people are, Craig and I are still together after hellacious years of 
of healing. It was painful. And, and, and often people say, well, how do you know you won't cheat again? And I'm like, I don't freaking know that. I don't, <laughs> one thing I don't do anymore is pretend to know anything. No thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. I won't make that mistake again, but I think I'm just, I'm not afraid of that. Like if that happens again, I'll deal with it. Like I've dealt with everything. Like I, I'm not, I'm not anymore putting all of my, uh, he doesn't, uh, he's not my life anymore. I know that sounds awful, but like, I know that if I lose that, I'll be okay. Because at my core, I'm not a wife. And at my core, I'm not a mother. Like at my core, I am a child of God. That's who I was when I was born. That's who I'll be when I die. That's the one thing that nobody can, can take away from me. I'm never going to put my identity in anything again that life can take away from me. Yeah. You know, I'm struck by that because, you know, to me, this is a book about intimacy and both you and Craig, you know, were needed to become whole and have that reunion in your words with yourselves before you could actually be intimate with each other. And yeah. I find, just find that fascinating because so often intimacy, we always get stuck in this, like, okay, it's the two of us and blaming and all of this, but it was really when you became whole with yourself and Craig realized that too, it seemed like that you guys could come together yeah, I mean, never before have I more clearly understood that relationship is just two people's relationship with God. Like, it, it cannot be you two just, like, staring at each other and trying to get whatever it is we need down here from each other. Like, it has to be two whole, healthy people um, who then decide to come together to make a partnership. Because if you're trying to get all your needs met from another person, you just, ugh, that's just a recipe for disaster, right? So... I mean, I, I think for sure, you know, if we are body, mind, and spirit, um, you know, the healthiest people that I know without lives of the mind, lives of the spirit, and lives of the body, um, for sure I had no less physical life. Like, I think that that happens to a lot of women. You know, we're ashamed and so confused about our bodies because of the messaging we get from the world so early yeah. that we really do just kind of disassociate from the physical life. Like, we are used to being objectified. And if you're an object... You're not living a life through that part of you. Like my body is to be seen. It's not to see. Like my body is to be desired. It's not to desire. Right. I didn't even know how to um, want with my own body or to listen to my own body or trust my own body. I was just trying to beat it into submission all the time and trying to get it to look a certain way so that people would want it. Right. So that basically the, I, the way I describe that is I had to, if, if we're like, Trinities, body, mind, spirit, I had a long ago voted my body off the island, right? Yeah. Um, and Craig had done that with his um, emotional life, which so many little boys do, right? So if girls are shamed out of their bodies early on, boys are definitely shamed out of their emotional lives early on. You know, don't cry. Be a big boy. Like, the world is not good at handling men's vulnerability. Oh, geez. Yeah. That's a whole other... You know? Yeah. Oh my God. I mean, I, I feel sad for them. Like I, I can't imagine. I cannot imagine. It, yeah. Sometimes it blows my mind. I have to remind myself that men are as human as women because it almost, it feels like they can't be since they have so little outlet to be human. You know, um, they don't talk to each other. I know that like Craig gets home from being with the guys and I'm like, what do you talk about? And it's like, 
sports, the weather. Right. I thought I would kill myself. Um, so, so anyway, it, it's really interesting for somebody who doesn't know how to receive or give love with her body to try to be loving someone who only gives and receives love with her body. Right. Right? Because he doesn't know how to use his mind or his heart. Like, I... And I don't know how to use my body. So I'm trying to love him with my mind, you know? Yeah. Because um, that's how I feel love is in conversation and it's connecting and it's all of that. And I just miss it. He's not there. Like, he doesn't live there. And he's trying to love me with, with his body. And I'm just like, it doesn't, that's not, that doesn't feel like love to me. I'm just not there. And it's so interesting to me to think that when I figured that out and started talking about it, so many women were like, oh, my God, that's it. That's it. That's what's happening. But, like, that, Craig really feels like, lo- like like physical love is the real kind of love. And I really feel like emotional love is the real kind of love. <laughs> right? Right. So, so it's fascinating to me to think that, that what we learn about masculinity and femininity yeah. from our culture actually keeps real women and men from loving each other. Yeah, and compartmentalized. And one of the things that I thought brought them together was when Craig, when he first revealed the news, or maybe it was in a later session, he said that, you know, it seems that you started revealing all the bad stuff in your life to your email, to Mama Street audience, and it's been very therapeutic for you. And I feel like if I do that, then somehow I will also be transformed. And I feel like there's something in that, in allowing ourselves to come out from underneath and to truly be seen, that is, you know, that's intimacy. And you were feeling that with your audience, like you were feeling intimacy with your audience, if not your husband, because that was like the channel where you were kind of unveiling the truth of who you were, even if it was to millions of people, it felt intimate to you. I thought that was so interesting. Isn't that weird? That's so weird. Yeah. I mean, because it's so much easier. And why is that? It's so much easier to be intimate with strangers. And, and I don't know if intimacy is the right word, right? If it's with a bunch of strangers. I don't know. Um, I mean, sometimes I feel like there's this parallel to, like, me thinking that I was getting my intimacy needs met by millions of strangers seems parallel to Craig thinking that he was getting his intimacy needs met by porn. Totally. Right? Yes. It's like, that's not something's happening, but it's like a fake. It's not like energy. It's like a sugar high. It's like, it's not real, you know? Um, And so, so there's some kind of pain that happens there. Like when you are only getting your needs met by strangers, I I, I don't know. I don't think that's intimacy. I I don't know what exactly it is. I I don't know though, because one, the porn, there's no revealing going on there. It's a one way talking head coming at you. Mm -hmm. You, the intimacy that I think you build is the authenticity of who you are. And you're sharing that in a very vulnerable way. Yeah, that is intimacy. And I am a person, I believe that intimacy has an evolution, and that it will be the basis of all human connection. And it will not only include sex, it will, you'll be able to be intimate. I mean, that's the new mode of communication. As far as I'm concerned, that's what women Mm -hmm. are bringing on. And Mm -hmm. I find that you have a way of creating intimacy by the way that you reveal 
who you are unabashedly and no matter how big the shit storm is, you're willing to do mm-hmm. that. You're giving people permission to do that. And that is a huge foundation for intimacy. Well, I love that you said that. I love that you say that and believe that. I mean, it, I, I'll tell you, it feels like love to me. I mean, when I think yeah. some, maybe it's Oprah or somebody who said, like, I, I can feel the love of strangers more than I can feel the love of people close to me sometimes. Like, I feel it. I feel like it's real, you know? And this this community that we have and, and the way we speak to each other and the truth we share with each other. And, and then I go to these events with them and I just feel I'm in these rooms with them and it just all feels very real. It, it feels like that revolution you're talking about. Yeah, I, um, that's happening. Yeah. Yeah, I do believe that you are at the... I mean, you have so much courage, sister. Jesus, mm-hmm. to be in... How many people have blogs where they're, you know, everything depends on the perfection of their lives, right? Yeah. And you're yeah. like, all right, I've already done my memoir. It's already been a New York Times bestseller. I don't need to, like, air my shit out there for everybody to read. Like, this is a private thing. Right. But you did it. Yeah. You did it. And you, I'm telling you, it's big. Oh, Chantel. It's big. You know, I remember sitting with, um, because the, I wasn't going to publish this. Like this was in the beginning when I started writing this book, this was what I used to get up every morning and just cry into my computer. Like I just, when I was trying to get through this and do the single mom thing and, you know, certain we were going to divorce and just all of that, it was just my time to process. And then my editor um, who's a dear friend, emailed me and said, what's going on? Are you okay? And I was just too tired to even answer. So I sent her some pages from it. And she was like, holy shit, fun. And like, this is big. Like you have to publish this. Um, and I was like, that's hilarious. Not a chance in hell. And then, um, and then over time I kept thinking, wait a minute, like this is where I test myself. Like this is, if I really believe yeah. that the truth, that the sets people free, and that has to mean for everything. Like, that can't just mean for the little stuff that nobody is going to raise an eyebrow at, like drinking. No. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, sex is a whole different sex and infidelity and all of that confusing stuff. Like, men and women's roles and, and all of the, and, and the God stuff and all of the stuff that that book's about. If it's true for one thing, then it has to be true for everything. Like, mm-hmm. if, if shame isn't real... If shame is poison, then it has to be poison for everything, even this, even this story. Um, so that's over time how we decided to just go for it. But I'm scared. Like, I'm, I, I feel scared. <laughs> I think it's so refreshing and fabulous. And I think there's lots of evolutions happening here, you know, within spirituality, within relationship, within personal empowerment for women. And I think I want to end on that note where we're, you know, you have this warrior metaphor coming on and it's directly linked with women. And you did some research and tell me more about that because I thought it was fascinating. Yeah. I mean, my friend Amy and I have been talking about this forever. It's just this thing we learn in Christian culture, um, which is that, that, that when God made man, God made man, and then God made woman. And when God made woman, um, God made woman as the helper for the man. Right. So this is a message that was repeated to me ad nauseum, right, um, over time. And, you know, it's kind of the same exact message that we get in the broader culture, too, you know, that women are exist to just be 
um, kind of supporting roles in like man's heroic story, right? So mm-hmm. it's the same thing we see on magazines and whatever, but there's a very distinct religious message, which is this helper thing. And, and it's directly, it's not implied, it's told to little girls, you know, you find your man and then you help him. Mm-hmm. And somebody actually said it to me during the time where everything was falling apart. Somebody in the church said, don't forget your job is to be, to help Craig through this. Mm-hmm. Like my job was to help Craig through his infidelity, right? Um, and so, and, and it just made me just hate church and God and everything involved with it. Right. Um, and then one day I just remember like that whole, I was sitting in my room during this time and I remember that whole, you know, get rid of the middleman, like, get rid of the middleman. God mm-hmm. never told you that. God never told you that you are Craig's helper. Like a bunch of people told you that in robes, um, but none of them were God. And so anyway, I just started to do my own research and, 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 just turned out to be one of the most beautiful evenings of my life, which is that the word that even the Bible uses for helper, what we've been told means helper is ezer. And the word ezer means warrior. And that's ezer. You pronounce it ezer? Ezer. E-Z-E-R. Right. That's the Hebrew word. And it, and it means benevolent and strong. Um, And so the good and good and strong, brave and kind. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, yin and yang, complete, um, not half, not helper. Um, it means warrior. And that word ezer is used to describe women, women, and then it's used to describe God, and it's used to describe like great military forces throughout the Bible. Wow. So, I mean, there really couldn't be any less appropriate translation than helper. <laughs> right. Right. Like, this is like a badass word. Yeah. Um, and, and that just changed everything for me because I just was like, oh my God, like, I'm not, wait a minute, like, I'm not, I'm not sitting around just waiting to see if Craig's going to be the hero of our family. Like, I'm the freaking hero of my life. Yeah. Like, I'm going to handle this business no matter what he does, no matter what happens. I am going to just warrior my way through this. Um, and so... And so I don't know, that was the night where I figured out, I think all of our problems are identity problems, right? Like we just don't know who we are. We just think we're weak or we think we're too sensitive or we think we're broken or we think we can't handle it. And none of that is true. We are warriors and we are children of God and there's nothing that can come at us that we can't handle. Yeah. Well, that's beautiful. I love it. I love that. You know, it's funny because for me, warrior was always so masculine and you know what I mean Mm -hmm. Um, and so this this perspective just totally like took back the night on that word you know to use that metaphor Mm -hmm. and it's really nice so I appreciate that tell us a little bit about Together Rising because I do want our audience to know how fierce you are I mean you are a movement maker Like you're really like, you know, beyond just your writing, you're not just an author writing your memoir. You're actually about outward action and creating real change and helping people who were at some point on the bathroom floor. Yeah. So I just love that. So tell me a little bit about that. Well, I think it's just a natural progression of everything that's happened. I mean, you know, I think my job is to be an art. My first job is to be an artist. My job as an artist is to just pay close attention. Right. I mean, my entire job is just to notice things that other people might not notice and, yeah. and, and tell them about it. Um, and so 
when you're an artist and you have to pay really close attention to people and to the world, what happens inevitably is that you just start falling in love, right? Because we can't really look at anybody closely or directly and not fall in love with them. It's just like the rule. Um, And so, and so that's what happened to me. Like over time as an artist, I just started falling in love with people, with my audience and with the people I met. And, um, and so my whole life just turned into service. I just, I just fell in love and I wanted to serve and I wanted to, you know, use whatever influence I had or whatever attention has been given to me to do good. Um, and so one, not because I'm a good person at all, but because it's so freaking exciting. It's like the most exciting thing, the service lane. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I'm just like a, a joy junkie, you know, and that's the secret is that, um, there's nothing more exciting than jumping in. Um, and, and I think like, I think all of art really leads to service. I think we all have these gifts and we think that, that we don't even know um, that they're really just a means to an end, right? Like we just jump in and start using our gifts and then it's like, <laughs> take the fight to the service lane over and over again. So anyway, we just started, I just started, we started small domestically, um, just serving families in need. We do this thing called a love flash mob every few months where um, I put up a need for a family in the community or, or a bigger need. And we just start giving and, you know, typically we raise like in the last one we did with a few, we, we had a few other artists join us and we raised a million and a half dollars in two what? days. In two days? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And, the, and the max, and the max donation is $25. So with that one, there's four, there was four, over 40,000 givers. Like it's serious business. <laughs> Um, so it's just really since I've turned into this revolution of givers and, um, and the magic is that it's small. You know, I think, I think people think of givers as they have to be these public rich people doing big things. Um, but our, but our whole thing is now like small things with great love, small things with great love. So the cap on all of our drives are $25 so that everybody feels deeply invested. And I think that's the magic of it. Cause I think people don't give because they get frozen. They don't know how much to give and they don't think that a small gift will make a difference. Um, so I think that's part of the magic sauce. Um, and yeah, I think we're, we're close to $5 million now and we've only been doing it for a few years. Wow. Um, yeah. And so we work on a together rising has a board, me and five other women who all volunteer all of our time. So every penny given to us goes directly to people in need, which is really super unusual. Um, and I, that's just all I want to do for the rest of my life. And I, I, um, work with this amazing woman named Amy, whose heart is just as big as the earth. And so she has, you know, she's just learned the refugee crisis inside and out. So we are in, you know, five refugee camps right now. Um, I think we feed 4,000 people a day over there. Um, we're building schools. We're building a maternity center in Haiti. Um, we just uh, got together to save this um, house for girls who've been sex trafficked in Nicaragua. Um, and then we do tons and tons of domestic work. So it's just it's it's a beast of its own, and it's a uh, um, it's magic. Wow. It's my favorite thing. Wow, I love it. I am so moved by you, Glennon. Oh. Really, I am. So I'm so happy that you're coming in October. It's going to be mad, mad, mad awesome. And I'm so grateful to have this time with you. Just uh, carry on the love 
warrior goddess yeah. <laughs> wife. I love it. I can't wait to hang out with you. Yes. I want to fast forward to our time together. It's going to be a blast. It's going to be off the hook. I can't wait. Okay, well, until then, thank you so much. Okay, lads. Have a great one. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.